Hello, and welcome to Fiduciary Talk, brought to you by FI360. I'm Blaine Aiken, Executive Chairman of FI360, and with me here today to discuss the impact of the 2016 elections uh, on advisors and on the fiduciary standard is Dwayne Thompson, FI360 Senior Policy Analyst in Washington. Welcome, Dwayne. Thank you, Blaine. It's good to be here. Well, unlike a, a lot of the broadcasts that you might uh, hear on a daily basis regarding the presidential contest, uh, we're not going to be talking about the personalities or the hot topic of the day, but rather we're going to try and step back and look at the presidential contest as well as some of the congressional elections and possible appointments. Uh, we want to look at those things in a much broader context. Even though personalities do seem to be dominating the storyline for every day, uh, I think let's try and dig a little deeper into the substance part. Uh, how does that sound to you, Dwayne? Well, probably not as exciting, but uh, I'm sure our audience would rather hear some substance for a change. So, yes. All right, that sounds good. Well, well, let's start with some key issues that are of interest to advisors: um, regulation and uh, and also tax reform. Uh, since this is always a hot topic when a new administration comes into office. So for starters, uh, what we've heard on these issues, it sure seems like there is a lot of contrast in the public policy positions that in this election, even more so than in other elections. Would you agree with that? Oh, oh, absolutely. Uh, when you start to, to dig in and, and look at their campaign platforms, see where they stand on things like Dodd-Frank, for example, uh, of course, that's been in place for uh, six years now, but uh, it's still controversial. And when you look at uh, the candidates' positions, uh, Donald Trump would like to repeal Dodd-Frank, and Hillary Clinton wants to keep it. Not only that, she wants to expand it a little bit and make uh, uh, executives more accountable, uh, continue to restrict speculative investment by banks and so forth. So uh, I think that's one example uh, when you when you look at it. Uh, it's, it's pretty black and white. Uh, another example is the estate tax. <laughs> uh, Donald Trump wants to repeal it. Hillary Clinton actually wants to uh, reduce the exemption and increase the tax rate uh, in terms of uh, income you know, uh, progressive uh, marginal income tax rates, uh, same thing. Uh, Donald Trump wants to simplify the, the tax rates and reduce overall taxes, and Hillary Clinton wants to increase them and even put a surcharge on uh, millionaires and so forth. So uh, I think you're right, Blaine. Uh, if someone, uh, and I know there's a small group of people out there who are still undecided this late before the election that... Uh, uh, I think it's easy to, to really uh, see some differences between uh, the two candidates. You know, uh, one of the things that seems to be left out of the conversation uh, from both of the candidates is uh, the, the national debt. That, uh, you occasionally hear a few remarks about it, but uh, they, they both seem to be uh, willing to kind of let that one go untalked about. <laughs> are, are well, yeah, well, if you look at the, the found, I'm thinking of the various tax foundations that look at it, uh, uh, I, 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 and again, it, it, it's, it's a uh, uh, contested area, but uh, what, what I've seen, and, and again, I'm, I'm no expert in this area by any means, 
by virtue of raising taxes, which is what Hillary wants to do, even though she also wants to increase uh, federal spending. They both want to actually increase federal spending. This is one area where they, they have share some <laughs> common agreement is, is on spending on infrastructure, uh, highways and bridges and so forth. So they actually agree on some federal spending in, in that area. But uh, in terms of, and this is sort of a classic debate you see in any election where uh, the argument uh, by Republicans in general, and, and Trump embraces this as well, is cut taxes and that increases GDP and growth, and and that will generate uh, you know growth and and pay down the debt that way. And uh, for Hillary Clinton, uh, when they look strictly without looking at economic factors and so forth, uh, by raising taxes, that would actually close the the debt gap in some ways. So it's really hard to say. It really depends on your your philosophy, I think, Blaine. Well, are there other areas where there's any level of uh, agreement between the candidates? Well, getting back to taxes, and again, you, you have to kind of really uh, look carefully. Uh, the carried uh, carried interest that uh, uh, it's it's associated, I guess, with hedge fund managers, and I, I think it was controversial in the last presidential election for Mitt Romney, uh, you know, the uh, uh, equity owner in a private equity firm. Uh, where you pay lower taxes on carried interest as opposed to the uh, marginal income tax rates, and and both candidates want to get rid of it. So uh, there's there's one other small area where they uh, share something in common. Another one uh, where Social Security hasn't been a hot topic, at least that I've seen uh, uh, this year. Uh, they both both candidates want aren't talking about shaking up. Uh, Social, Social Security, it's, it's still scheduled to uh, run run out of money in terms of paying full uh, benefits in 2034. So uh, they're not talking about shaking it up or partially privatizing it or anything like that. So uh, Hillary does want to expand it uh, a, a bit, but uh, Donald Trump hasn't said really much about it other than I, I think it looks like he wants to keep it sort of status quo. On the regulatory front, uh, I think you mentioned that Hillary Clinton does support the DOL uh, fiduciary rule. Uh, and while Trump hasn't taken a formal position that I'm aware of or even really mentioned anything about it, some of his supporters have, uh, can you shed some light on that? Yeah, there was a, uh, a report in Investment News where, you're right, uh, Hillary Clinton did come out uh, in April when the rule, final Department of Labor rule came out and said unequivocally uh, it was needed for investor protection and so forth. And Donald Trump hasn't really uh, addressed it, but he had a campaign advisor, uh, a gentleman who said, oh, yes, we're going to uh, – Get, overturn the rule when uh, Donald Trump's elected, and uh, it's the worst rule since the Dred Scott decision of 1857, or something like that. So, uh, and and some uh, Republicans in Congress said if Donald Trump is elected or when he's elected, that uh, uh, we should be able to, meaning uh, the Congress, uh, overturn the rule with his support. So while he has, while he's been silent on it, I think. It appears to be uh, a clear black and white lines between uh, Hillary Clinton's position supporting the rule and Donald Trump probably 
wanting to uh, over, overturn it, just like he wants to turn, overturn uh, uh, Obamacare and uh, the Dodd-Frank Act. Uh, they both take polar opposite positions. Yeah, that uh, Dred Scott reference, uh, I think, raised more than a few eyebrows. But uh, <laughs> so, so where, uh, in terms of the rollout of the fiduciary rule, obviously we're coming up on that uh, April 2017 first compliance date. Uh, what do you think happens under uh, you know post-election scenarios that we might have? Well, that's that's a good question, Blaine, because. Uh, basically, you, you have a rule in place, uh, and it would be difficult, for example, uh, if, we, if we can confirm that Donald Trump doesn't like it, which I think is, is the case, that uh, it's difficult to, to, at least on the regulatory side, overturn a rule, unless, of course, you know, there's still a couple uh, lawsuits out there challenging it. But barring no surprises in that area, the only way you can overturn the rule, just go back to square one, is get legislation passed. And that means you need uh, both parties of Congress, I mean, rather, uh, the Republican Party to control both houses. And even if they keep the Senate, and it's more likely that they'll keep the House, they, you'd still need a 60-vote majority in the Senate to... Uh, avoid uh, filibusters. So really, uh, whereas in the House, a 218-vote majority is enough to do business and, and pass legislation, uh, in the 100-member Senate, you really need 60 votes instead of 51. And neither party, unless there's some huge surprise on Election Day, neither party is uh, likely to come even close to 60. I think the Best estimate is Democrats could get 54 votes, um, possibly, or uh, Republicans who have more seats to defend could hold on with their fingernails and and keep get 51 or so. So uh, I, I I don't think anything is going to change in terms of overturning the Department of Labor rule in legislation. But what say a Republican administration could do uh, is I, I don't know if they could slow down the implementation date. Uh, you have, you know, a January 20th inauguration. The, the compliance date for the rule is uh, April 10th. So there might be something to, that uh, an administration could do. And assume, this is also assuming the political appointees are nominated and approved in Congress uh, by that date where they could either slow down the implementation schedule or even provide guidance or exemptions that would uh, ease some of the regulatory burden that uh, a lot of the industry is, is complaining about. But I think in its, at, at its core, uh, the rule is going to be in place, barring a surprise in, in court or something else. Uh, in terms of if Hillary Clinton uh, is elected, she's probably going to keep keep doing what uh, the, the Obama administration is doing in keeping a robust standard in place. Uh, I, I don't see many surprises if, if there's a Clinton administration in place. It would seem that, uh, as a practical matter, the die has been cast, too, in terms of uh, firms already well in motion, many of them, and uh, hopefully those that are really going to be the most prepared. Uh, they're already in motion. Pretty hard to reverse fields. Yeah, well, that yeah, that that's that's a great point. Uh, it, even though 
if this would have happened much earlier, you'd, you'd have a chance to change, but it's a little bit like a slow-moving oil tanker. You uh, you have to set up these new systems, uh, broker-dealers. We're, we're starting to see news reports now about how broker-dealers are re- reacting to the, the Department of Labor rule in terms of whether they're going to uh, eliminate commission accounts like Merrill Lynch is planning to do. You, you just can't change overnight and say uh, whether it's been an injunction in a court or something else, say, okay, let's go back to square one. It's not going to be that easy. So I think in some ways a lot of these firms are committed uh, to the rule, and it would be a very difficult decision uh, to say let's go back because I've seen some comments by uh, some folks who say, you know, it's coming. Whether uh, there's uh, court blocks it, it's it's just the way things are changing. So uh, we'll have to see, though. Yep. So with the DOL uh, rule, I agree with you. There's no going back to square one. Well, the SEC is having trouble getting to square one. Uh, what are the reasons <laughs> for that, and what's the outlook there going ahead? Uh, who knows really uh, what goes on inside the SEC, but but kind of the reports that I think you've heard and I've heard is uh, it's it's controversial. Whereas the Department of Labor, when you when you think about it, they don't have a commission that has to they don't have a structure where they have to vote to approve a rule. Uh, the minute that's part of the cabinet, the the president says, uh, "I want you to make this priority." The uh, cabinet secretary says yes, sir, and they go about it. They they propose a rule and then they move forward and adopt it. But when you look at uh, the SEC, you have a five-member commission uh, that votes and has to approve it. And uh, unlike the Department of Labor, uh, you've had differences of opinion on the staff level, uh, and and the SEC just hasn't been able to to get its arms around it. The other thing I think is that uh, the SEC, after Dodd-Frank, had the mother load of rules that it had to work on. And this, the, the fiduciary rule was an option. It, it wasn't a, there wasn't a mandate, uh, obviously, under Dodd-Frank that the SEC adopt the rule, the fiduciary rule. Uh, the Department of Labor was largely uh, unaffected, I think, by Dodd-Frank. It did not have the same sort of legislative mandates that the financial services agencies had. So they had more time to, to concentrate on their fiduciary rule while the SEC was inundated by all kinds of rules that they're still not finished with uh, uh, right now. Yeah, huge, uh, huge uh, sort of undertaking that they've been faced with. Well, you know, Dwayne, uh, this has been very instructive. Uh, maybe it's worthwhile to just comment uh, one aspect that, that we don't hear a lot about, and that's the, the public officials as fiduciaries themselves. Uh, it seems uh, in many respects uh, far away from the stream of consciousness to recognize that the uh, public officials do, in fact, have a fiduciary duty. Uh, but this is yeah. an area that... Yeah, go ahead. Well, no, no, no. I was, I was going to say, I agree with you. Where we said we were going to get away from the sound bites of the day, and and everything is, is just. Uh, it seems like every week there's there's a new scandal or controversy breaking. Uh, the topic of uh, elected officials as fiduciaries is is not going to be, uh, unfortunately, uh, 
uh, popular show out there, but I think it's a very interesting question, and you had a had a few thoughts about it. So let me uh, shut up and let you go on with that, Blaine. <laughs> well, you know, it is. Uh, I, I, it would be wonderful if the uh, public officials would uh, wake up in the morning, look in the mirror, and say, uh, "What can I do today to be a better fiduciary?" But um, somehow that doesn't uh, seem like that's happening. Uh, but, you know, fiduciaries, um, or public officials, I should say, are recognized generally as uh, fiduciaries, and it's actually something that even the Founding Fathers talked about uh, at the time of the setting of the Constitution. But uh, I came across an interesting article on this point from uh, Hannah Callahan, Callahan uh, who was Director of Government Ethics at Santa Clara University, and this was just the, the end of May of this year, where uh, the title of the article was about public officials as fiduciaries, and uh, in that article, she pointed out that you know we there are five obligations of public officials uh, that are most prominent, and they they have a familiar ring for those of us in the in this area of fiduciary responsibility for investment advisors. The first being a duty of care uh, that they're obligated to competently and faithfully execute the duties of the office and the duty of loyalty to put the public's interest before their own direct or indirect personal interests. They also are obligated to act with impartiality to represent all of their constituents fairly uh, and be accountable. They need to be transparent and guard against the arbitrary exercise uh, of official power or even secrecy in the political process. And the, and the fifth aspect I found particularly compelling, and that's the obligation to maintain public trust in government. Uh, so they're expected to protect and promote the public trust, trust and, uh, and avoid even the appearance of impropriety. So, Blaine, uh, I, yeah, Blaine, I was, I was just going to add that uh, I, I think advisors can identify that if, if they've uh, been working as fiduciaries because... Uh, they're they're acting in a position of trust, just like the politicians, and uh, they may be delegated duties by their clients to uh, uh, invest on their behalf and so forth. And and that's what happens when you elect a, a, a politician. You're delegating uh, the duties of of government to them to act on your behalf, and you and you have to trust them. So I, I a lot of that resonates, I think. Yeah, I think so too, and uh, it is—it's uh, a subject I, I wish we would hear more about, and that uh, there was more evidence of the public officials recognizing these uh, obligations. One of the things I also found, Dwayne, and uh, is looking at some of the legal literature about this, that um, the, it typically points to the inherent difficulty in specifying who the beneficiaries that must be served are. Uh, by the various levels of uh, government and public officials. As you get to the national level, it's more clear. It's the, uh, the entire uh, citizenry. Um, when you're down at a more local level, it really starts to bubble all the way up uh, from the local constituents all the way up through those issues that have national ramifications. But uh, invariably, whenever we talk about enforcement, it comes down to the fact that the voters uh, are really at the heart of it. Uh, that true fiduciary oversight really relies on there being informed and engaged uh, electorate. And here's where I think we all need to do a better job as uh, citizens to make sure that we're keep up on the uh, obligations of our elected officials and 
the activities of our elected officials and hold them accountable. So I guess as we approach uh, November 8th, let's uh, just uh, ask everybody to go vote. That and with sounds that, like a great ending to that, Blaine. Thank you. All right. It's good to have you with us again, Dwayne. And we'll be Thank talking you. soon. Okay. Bye-bye.